Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I'm going to be talking to somebody I've wanted to talk to for a long time because I've been reading his work for a long time, and that's David Horowitz. Anybody who's been reading conservative commentary over the past couple of decades will recognize his name because he's been writing for over 50 years. He was born in 1939 in Los Angeles to communist parents, actually, and was a hardcore communist himself. He became one of the founders of the New Left in the 1960s and the editor of its largest magazine, Ramparts. And in the 1970s, he created the Oakland Community Learning Center, which was an inner city school for disadvantaged children that was run by the Black Panther Party. Yes, David Horowitz was deeply connected with the Black Panthers, including most of their major leaders. But his experiences with the Black Panthers actually disillusioned him to the left so much that he left the left side of the spectrum and eventually became a conservative, writing the sorts of books that he writes today. The book that, that I read from him that was the most influential was the Black Book of the Left. In the 1990s, he created the Individual Rights Foundation, which led the battle against speech codes on college campuses and compelled the entire president's cabinet of the University of Minnesota to undergo five hours of sensitivity training in the First Amendment for violating the free speech of its students. In 1996, he was a spokesman for the California Civil Rights Initiative. He's written so many books as well, including an autobiography, Radical Son, which has been described as the first great autobiography of his generation, and chronicles his odyssey from radical activism to the current positions that he holds. Among his other books are The Politics of Bad Faith, The Party of Defeat, Unholy Alliance, Uncivil Wars, and The Professors. His book, The Art of Political War, was described by White House political strategist Karl Rove as the perfect guide to winning on the political battlefield. Now, he's, he's spoken almost everywhere, about 300 different college campuses, and I don't agree with David Horowitz on everything, as I don't for most people. He's an extremely fascinating person. He's a very complicated person, but he, he wrote a new book recently called I Can't Breathe, The Racial Hoax Killing America, and I did want to have a discussion with him based on his previous history and how he understands America's current moment through the moments that he has lived through. And this is that interview. Well, now that we're started, before I get into your latest book, because I've been reading your work for so many years, I can't help but give it the listeners a bit more context for the long career you take to the subject that you're examining how does your history as somebody who operated on the left and interacted with a lot of organizations, for example, like the Black Panthers, inform your perspective on this now? I put in, I paid my dues is the way I look at it. I think the worst thing that's happened to our country, well, one of the really terrible things, is that people are scared. They won't confront obvious lies and stupidities Racism is anti-white racism. White people are having a very hard time defending themselves, for example. I've got to, I mean, I'm not saying these people don't have a clear conscience because I can't get inside their heads and figure out what. And I've written three books about race. And I feel there for, for, you know, there are a lot of people out there. Well, the whole left is composed of people who assert things with, with no evidence. 
and they do it because they can get away with it. I feel even if you believe what the left says about me, you have the option of actually reading what I've written. I've written a couple of million words, seeing who I am. And if you don't, too bad. That's sad, sad for our state of affairs for the country. I would just, somebody sent me an article from, in. Uh, it's a magazine called Inside Higher Ed. And it's kind of, there are, there are maybe two higher education magazines, and this is one of the probably most important. And it's called The Truth About Huey Newton, about the Panthers. As you know, I had a close relationship with Huey Newton and the Panthers. And it's written by his widow, Frederica Newton. And it compares him to George Floyd. You know, he's, he's a victim of his skin color. Huey Newton was a stone-cold murderer. He murdered an 18-year-old black prostitute. He raped a pregnant woman. He, he buggered Bobby Seale. I mean, all this is very well-known and very well-established stuff. Killed other people. And he, he actually derailed my life for a good decade because I had put a lot of faith in him. I, I had believed our own propaganda. But this is such monstrous lying. And it's not that his widow says it. It's that Inside Higher Ed... I know the editor of Inside Higher Ed. I'm not going to call him on this because it's futile. But this is this is kind of what I you know encounter and live through all the time. So I think one of the striking things about my book is is its bluntness. I don't pull any punches. I state it exactly the way I see it. A racial hoax is killing America. That. If you read the book, you will understand why I say that. And I, I'm, I'm just not shy about it. So I think in that way, it's had a big influence. And I actually wrote a book 20 years ago. Actually, it came out, I, I conceived it in 1999, which was called Hating Whitey and Other Progressive Causes. Uh, that book was too early. This book may be too late. I think people people are already beginning to see what liars the left the leftists are, and that's the Democrat Party. Well, everything they say is uh, is both racist and a lie. They make it up. They assert it. They do it in the free knowledge that nobody's going to hold them to account. Or, or, the chief racist in the country is Joe Biden. I mean, on his inauguration day, he said that systemic racism touches every aspect of American life. I believe that's a direct quote. No, it's outlawed. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 outlawed systemic racism. So if you have one police department or two, or any institution that's systemically racist, with one exception, you will have a tsunami of lawsuits and they'll be settled with millions of dollars because it's, it's not even a controversial case that you have to make. It's there out in the open. And the one exception, of course, is affirmative action, which is 
systemic racism. People get jobs, people get promoted, people go to elite universities with, with improper grade scores, shall we say, on the basis of their skin color. That is what systemic racism is. And the whole Democrat Party is guilty of supporting it. When, you, when you're looking at what's happening today, I really want to I want to introduce our listeners to your work, because like some of your books, well, I, I don't know which one I would pick out as as the one that I think is most informative. But the, the black book of the left, I think, is, is a must read for anybody who wants to understand the American left in particular, your collection of revolutionary profiles, I also found just very helpful in terms of laying out a lot of the influencers and, and their leftist backgrounds. Could you give our listeners just a sort of a summary of your biography? Because you sort of began on the left, you know, over half a century ago, you were you were not only like of the left, but you you knew most of the major players on the on the left, both in America and and, and in Europe. And then eventually, you were just became disillusioned with the left. You departed from it to become one of the most successful conservative authors in the United States. Could you give our listeners just a sense of of how you made that journey? Sure, I was raised by card-carrying communists. And <clears throat> let me explain exactly what that means. In, in Virginia today, we have the wretched head of the Justice Department. This guy has got to be the most corrupt attorney general in the history of the United States, Merrick Garland, who sicked what amounts to our, you know, a, a national police force on parents who are upset, for example, because one of their daughters was raped by a dress-wearing transgender male in the bathroom, and it was denied by the school. And, and I mean, they took him out brutally. So I have that image. And of course, it's very intimidating to have the FBI make putting you on a list. I'm, I, most people would be intimidated by that. Well, it happens that when I was a young person, I was born in 1939, so I was there at the beginning of the Cold War. We had an FBI car sit outside our house, and the, the guys in it taking notes on everybody who came and went. Uh, sure, that was intimidating. My parents happened to be school teachers also. But the reason the FBI was there was because my parents were hiding an East German communist agent in the basement whom the government wanted to deport. And they obviously wanted the networks around him. So that's what the FBI is supposed to do. And this is where we are today. I was one of the founders of the New Left, my generation, or me in particular, because I, I discovered that leftists don't read books. I mean, I think that that's one of the reasons that I'm no longer a leftist. I've read a lot of books about the Russian Revolution, for example. But I lost my train of thought there. But I was a founder of the New Left because I wanted to save socialism from being tainted by the crimes of Stalin. In those days, people like Bill Buckley were saying, who we hated, was saying that Stalin had killed 8 million people in peacetime. This is for their political views. When Khrushchev gave his 
I, I hope people are aware of the Khrushchev report, but the head of the, when, after Stalin died, the head of the Communist Party, Nikita Khrushchev, fearful that another Stalin would arise, gave a secret speech that was leaked by the Israelis, Israeli Mossad, in which he accused Stalin of murdering communists, basically. And as the facts have come out over the years, Stalin didn't kill 8 million uh, people. He killed 40 million. And Mao Zedong killed 100 million. And all these people on the left, all these Black Lives Matter people, they think that Mao and Stalin are the cat's meow. Uh, and Fidel Castro, a, a sadistic monster himself. So I want I I still believe the socialist vision. It's a beautiful idea. We're all going to get along. A beautiful idea. Be be wary of beautiful ideas, because if you really believe that you could end poverty, end racism, end so I hate the word sexism, but end sexism, uh, end war, end poverty, basically end all unnecessary human suffering. If you believe that you and your movement could do that, what lie would you not tell? What crime would you not support, cover up, or commit to achieve it? There is none. The the more beautiful the lie, the the more dangerous it is. So I, I wanted a socialism. That's why we called ourselves New Left. And I was an editor of the first New Left magazine. It was called Root and Branch. Um, and I did my bit there. I wrote a little book called Student that was published in 1962 about our budding movement to cleanse uh, the socialist escutcheon and make it pure and holy again. And I unfortunately still believed a lot of our propaganda So I was seduced, as it were, by a Hollywood producer to get involved with the Black Panther Party and Huey Newton. He introduced me to Huey. And, you know, I had that intellectual disease. If you get close to people with some power, thugs, it makes you feel important. (laughs) I shouldn't put it that way because it makes me look stupid. I wasn't stupid, but I felt, okay, the revolution has a vanguard. It's got a leadership that's not afraid. And actually, I told these stories in Radical Son, my autobiography. But Tom Hayden, who who was a Machiavellian, really evil person, Tom, when there was a battle over People's Park in Berkeley, he went to the Panthers specifically to David Hilliard, their field captain, and asked the Panthers to shoot down. I'm I'm wondering if I can use this word, but I have to use the word to get the flavor of what happened. If, If the Black Panthers would shoot down the police helicopter that was hovering over the tear, actually tear gassing the crowds, and David Hilliard said, just like you, Tom, get a nigger to pull the trigger. And it's that kind of frankness. I mean, you get that all the time from, I mean, I, I love the black conservatives because they're very blunt. Anyway, 
So I raised a lot of money for the Panthers. I bought a Baptist church in the East Oakland ghetto, which had been overtaken by the ghetto. I wrote, the check I wrote was for $125,000, which was a hell of a lot of money in those days. Uh, and I, I raised it from Rockefellers and Hollywood producers. And I'll never forget the minister of this church. It had 35 classrooms. It was a perfect setup for a movement. He, he said to me, you're not going to turn this, as I signed the check, you know, or, and he took it. You're not going to turn this over to the Black Panthers of the Nation of Islam, are you, David? And of course, I said, no. Like I said, you'll tell any lie for a good cause. So what happened then was I created a tax-exempt foundation to fund it, stupidly believing our propaganda that if it was progressive, the fascist, racist state would shut it down. Quite the opposite is true. Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton running criminal operations as 501c3s, nobody will touch them because they're progressives and black, of course. So I recruited the bookkeeper. I was editing the largest magazine of the new left and I recruited my bookkeeper, Betty Manpatter, to do the books for this Baptist church that we converted. I called it the Oakland Community Learning Center. And it became the base of the Panthers' operations. There's always a very seductive cover to leftist operations. Leftists are brilliant at political warfare. And Republicans are incredibly stupid when it comes to political warfare. And so they always covered their evil deeds with noble causes. One day, Betty Van Patter disappeared. And by the time the police had interviewed me and fished her body out of San Francisco Bay. I knew the Panthers had killed her. And that sent me into a personal tailspin. I, I was, what I would say, clinically depressed for the next 10 years. Everything I had believed in had led to this. I had thought I was sophisticated. I knew about Stalin's crimes. I knew the Vietnamese were criminals, not, not the Vietnamese, but their leaders, and killed a lot of people. But it didn't prevent me from being involved in the chain of events that led to this poor woman's death. She was a mother of three children. And that was my, my turning, because what happened at the same time was the United States was driven out of Vietnam by the left. It was the left's greatest victory during the 60s and 70s. And immediately the communists came in and proceeded to slaughter two and a half million innocent Indo-Chinese peasants for thought crimes. That's basically, in Cambodia, they killed everybody with glasses. They were, this is not as stupid as it sounds because they read books and therefore they transmitted the evil reactionary ideas of the past. Not that different from tearing down statues. You want to kill... The first thing you want to destroy if you're a revolutionary bent on destroying everything it is memory. And you can read Orwell's 1984. He's obviously very good on that subject. 
So they killed Betty and got away with it. My, my friends told me, well, I confided in a few. I, I had four kids. I was scared for them and, and uh, my whole family. All my friends said the white power structure killed Betty, not the Panthers, which is no different from what Black Lives Matter is saying today. And then I dedicated myself to fighting the left. I, I began with a book called the, the Politics of Bad Faith, I think is my first salvo. But I've been relentless ever since. And yeah, my life has been threatened many times. I was going to ask you that specifically, because the, the people that you were involved with, so for, first there's the new left, so you were involved with a lot of intellectuals, but a lot of the people that you were that you were directly involved with, including the Black Panthers, like these were not easy people to disassociate from. And what was, what was that break like? Because you had a personal relationship with a lot of them. So how did that personal relationship break down? When I was 35, I lost every friend that I had ever had in life. It was scary, and it taught me, because I said, can I re-put my whole life together at this age? But I realized then that's the glue that keeps everybody in the left. All those vicious name callings, calling you a racist, calling you a sexist, whatever it is to banish you from the community of the decent and the good, intimidates. Everybody's intimidated. You never think about, at least I never thought about it. If you had told me I was uh, towing the party line because I was scared, I would have considered that insulting. But when I left and saw how powerful it was, I realized it's true. So would you say that, that cancel culture today which is bound, all these things are together, right? Sort of the woke ideology, cancel culture, the, the Black Lives Matter thing, that it's all, it's this concurrence of, of social pressures that sort of hold people into place, prevent them from saying what they think, going along with movements that they have reservations about. Absolutely. Have some quasi bit of fame for saying, don't call them liberals. Don't call them progressives. I mean, what's progressive about rerunning the Stalin era? Um, but don't call them crazy. They're not crazy. The political correctness is a party line. It, it was The term was coined by the greatest mass murderer in human history, Mao Zedong, to keep party people in line. And it's, it's incredibly, incredibly powerful. They're not crazy. They're fascists. They are very deliberate what they're doing. Everything is designed to demonize anybody who disagrees with them and banish them from the community of the decent. You're not part of decent society if you criticize the left. That's their most powerful weapon. So let's talk about your, your most recent book in the context of everything you've lived through. And I really wanted to establish your, your life's experience before getting to the book, because this isn't another book kind of just exposing the Marxist roots of, of the Black Lives Matter leadership. It, it, it is that, but it's not just that, because again, I, I don't know of another book written by a conservative who used to work with the Black Panthers back in the 60s 
and and who was there present and involved the last time the left was resurgent in America and seemingly sort of at the at the vanguard of new political movements. And so what I really wanted to ask you is in writing this book and looking back at what you lived through before, would you say that America is at a more dangerous point now than it was when you were launching the new left and working with the Panthers? We're on the brink. Well, we're in a fascist state. Look, this FBI to intimidate K-12 parents. Think about that for a second. Why are they again? Why are they for defunding the police when eighty percent of blacks are, are against defunding the police? Because America is it was a brilliant construction. We have eighteen thousand local police departments. That means even if ten of them are run, you still have whatever it is seventeen thousand whatever good ones who can set it straight. If you have a national police force, you have a Gestapo. There's no checks on it. And look what they're proposing. Aside from the fact that Pelosi keeps running this Stalinist show trial against Trump and pretending that there was an armed insurrection on January 6th and ignoring the role of all these FBI agents in that in making the insurrection, as it were, possible and ignoring it. Nobody's asking. They, they have, because the universities are lie factories and they train people to be Stalinists, you don't have the check of the media. So nobody's even asking, you know, how, how do you call this event an insurrection when it's actually about five out of the 600 people there were peaceful protesters, middle-aged, um, not setting fire to anything, not blowing up anything. There were no arms. Everybody who's dead from that event was a Trump supporter. You don't even have these questions asked. But just to go back to this original example, so what are they proposing? They're proposing 80,000 treasury agents. Now, in my day, we used to call them T-men. I don't know if they're called T-men now. G-men were government. It's it's a Gestapo. Now they'll have not only, I don't know how big the FBI is, but it's very big. You not only have the FBI to intimidate individuals, but you're going to have the T-men, the Treasury Department, and they'll know everything about you, all your financial relationships and, you know, what you spent your last check on. It's scary, and nobody is really talking about it. They People say, it's just wacko. Can you argue that that's been true for, for a long time, though? Government's been growing very, very steadily. And, and, and there's, so like, you know, Obama used, and you've written about this before as well, used the IRS against conservative groups. Nixon had his enemies list. So you kind of have this, this back and forth. I've had the IRA on my ass for 20 years try to shut me down. And I have, I wrote an article about this. I have two old friends. I'm Ron Radosh. I know since I was 12 and he was 14, which for me makes it 61 years. We were buddies. I met him at a communist, youth communist party meeting. 
And Stern and Radosh wrote this piece about me. They haven't read anything I've written, I can tell you from reading their piece, saying I was a Trump propagandist and a threat to American democracy because I questioned the fixed election result. Yeah, it's, and, and they're calling on the IRS to shut me down. No one, what kind of leftist used to do that? Well, that's a good question because, so I, I will admit, I'm always very skeptical of, 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 of the most extremist language on, on either side, mainly because, so back when you were a member of the left, there was one eight-month period where there was, there was close to a thousand bombings in the continental United States. None, and, you know, from everybody from the weathermen to, to other cell groups, one of the bombings was, was a little restaurant that ended up killing a bunch of people. And so, you know, the value of history is to give us perspective. So we had the, you know, the, 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 the Black Lives Matter slash Antifa riots. And you know, does a good job on this subject in his book Unmasked last year. But are, are we really worse now than we were when there was, you know, a thousand bombings in, in a year and there was riots that you were part of? You know, as you said earlier, there was violence being perpetrated against individuals by leftist groups that were getting a pass from the media. And so I'm just trying to say, are, are we worse? Are we the same? Is fascist the appropriate term for the Democrat Party and what they're doing? Let me recommend to your uh, listeners the issue, the current issue of Revolver News, which is a story about Ray Epps, who was working, who who was a, a DOJ, Department of Justice agent, who was the first person to attack, lead the attack on the U.S. Capitol. As, as you may know, there were at least 50 government agents leading that attack. This is classic stuff that, you know, unfortunately, the word Nazi is so, so inflammatory, but that the Nazis used in the 1930s. And it's what the Reichstag fire is about. It was to lay the blame on the left, which was the enemy at the time of the Nazis, for the violent demonstrations. As you know, I think half the people who attempted to kidnap Whitmer, Governor Whitmer of Michigan, were also working for the government. But here's the, I wrote another book. It's called The Enemy Within, How a Totalitarian Movement is Destroying America. And the thesis of the book, which I think I proved over and over again, is that The central organizing themes of the Democrat Party are demonize anybody who disagrees with you as a racist, a white supremacist, an insurrectionist. Now it's become a domestic terrorist. You delegitimize them so they no longer have any uh, of the civil rights that we're accustomed to as Americans. Destroy the First Amendment. I don't recall a single Democrat objecting when Trump was deplatformed by Twitter. I don't remember one. And of course, Pelosi and uh, Elizabeth Warren were calling for that. All their other proposals are designed to create a one-party state, abolish the Electoral College, which enforces compromise on political candidates. 
and as part of our system of checks and balances, pack the Supreme Court, which makes the Supreme Court an appendage of the legislature and removes a check on unlawful legislation. And of course, you have Nancy Pelosi, the chief demonizer, totally abusing the impeachment process. Now, half the impeachments in our entire history are of Donald Trump, bogus impeachments from the, from the get-go. This is the reality that we're looking at. The Democrat Party is now a racist party. I mean, if you, Nazi actually would be an appropriate term for it. You know, white people are playing the role of the Jews. And why did they single out white people? Because America was created by white people. And their real agenda is a Marxist revolution that will destroy all our freedoms. I want to look uh, again, though, at, at the historical parallels between what you went through in the 60s and what we see going on right now that you're describing in, in your new book, I Can't Breathe, because the parallels seem to me, you know, so like the riots and Antifa, etc. you've got the weathermen and you've got the bombings, you've got the Black Panthers, you've got Black Lives Matter. And it's really interesting to me, these parallels. But these bombers were isolated. I wrote editorials in Ramparts, which was the biggest magazine in the left, condemning Bill Ayers and these, the weatherman terrorists, dissociating from them. There was tremendous opposition from within the left against the bombers. And they, and they were fringe elements. The weathermen were never that, that many people. Nothing like what Black Lives Matter mobilized to destroy. Cities. We're talking about billions of dollars in damage. We're talking about scores of people murdered, you know, set on fire, and and no Democrats protesting. Nobody's standing up for decency, law and order. This is not the way we conduct things in America. You have a fascist mentality that has enveloped the political left. Party is playing the leading role. The Democrat Party officially endorses Black Lives Matter racists, uh, and the, and the the lying is unreal. We didn't have a media that lied like this before. This is this is exactly something else I wanted to ask you because like the new and radical Democrats, you know, it's sort of par for the course. The AOCs. You know, you know, you kind of expect this from them. But if I look at somebody like like, you know, Joe Biden, um, who's in his, his 70s, a lot of these guys, they're endorsing things that I know for a fact they would have, you know, like spoken out against angrily, you know, 15 years ago. Like, you know, Joe Biden heard about transgenderism 15 minutes ago. And now it's one of his biggest causes. Although if you had told him in 1990 that he'd be endorsing this sort of thing, he would have called you a liar. How did all these, how did all these Democrats, especially those who should know, who are old enough to know better, for lack of a better way to put it, how did they get swept along with things that like not that long ago they would have they would have called you a liar for accusing them of? I'll say what I think about Joe Biden, although it's gonna take another David Horowitz, that is somebody from the left, somebody deeply involved in this to expose it and to explain that. Cortez, you know, she's an idiot. She's an airhead. 
that anybody takes her seriously is a mystery, although there's always going to be some. Who made them important in the Democrat Party? Nancy Pelosi did. Ilhan Omar, how is it possible that her, you know, her father was a propagandist for a Marxist dictator who killed thousands of people. How did she get on the Foreign Affairs Committee? This is a whole, you know, it's another question. The, what you have to face is the reality. The reality is, is that we have a party, the Democrat Party, that is racist to the core. You have Joe Biden saying in his inauguration that systemic racism touches every aspect of American life. You know, the Iranians could have said that. In fact, systemic racism is outlawed by the Civil Rights Act. If there were systemic racism, and there is not in America, there is one program that's systemically racist, which is affirmative action, where on the basis of your skin color, you get a, to go to the head of the line for a job, you know, to get into a university. And you have to understand, this has been taking place over a 50-year period. The takeover of the Democrat Party by what I will call the fascist left started in 1968 when Hayden led. Oh, you know, I never got to the end of my Hayden story. The Hayden story about the helicopter? The Hayden story about the two of us standing, watching this violence begin where the cops were firing tear gas. One guy, one, one uh, I don't know if he was a student, but one leftist was actually killed. And I said to Tom, I was really worried. I said, Tom, somebody's going to get hurt here. And he put his arm around me in an avuncular fashion and said, David, you have to understand what we have to do is we have to lure middle-class white kids into situations where they will get their heads cracked and that will make them radicals. I was horrified. I, the Marxist revolutionary, was horrified by that. I don't see legions of leftists coming out of the woodwork horrified by the violence that they're committing, by the murders they're committing, by all the minorities that they're killing. I don't see anybody standing up to the lies. Well, now you do. It's begun in the schools, which is a good thing. But this is so much worse than anything that happened. I know there were a lot of bombings, but, you know, Billy Ayers probably said half of them. No, he didn't say half of them. It's, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't take that many people to set bombs. It takes that many people to, to conduct 633 violent riots in 220 cities, which is what they did. So, so here, here's what a lot of people would want to know, because you make a lot of very interesting points in your book. But one of the things that most ordinary people, I mean, not conservative or liberal, because, you know, they're not engaged enough to identify with, with, a, with, with a political mo- with, a, with a political label. But 
If, if, and I think this is true, the vast majority of Americans do not identify with the worldview of, of the leadership of Black Lives Matter, which is Marxist, and the, the other things that you expose in your book, why is it that people are so afraid to disagree with them when, when there's such a, because, you know, the whole of the world erupts and, and people, people were getting fired for, for, for like really, really calm and measured discourse on what was actually going down last year. And so how did this minority get so powerful seemingly overnight? They run, the universities are lie factories. They're liars. I, I, I think we began with that. That story in Inside Higher Ed about Huey Newton portraying him as a, an innocent black killed for his skin color when he was a rapist and a murderer. I mean, that, that's a big difference, a big jump. You don't want to be called a racist by these people. You know, I, I do think, I mean, if you, I'm not a good crystal ball gazer, but I will tell you, I, I see the weakness in this movement, the Achilles heel of this movement, is that they're way in advance of the people that they've recruited universities are not going to do the trick. Yes, there's an instinct on the left. I mean, the revolt, look at the revolts against them. One is the parents of K-12 kids who are finally standing up to oppose the indoctrination they're getting in the schools, which is obscene to, to say America, to, to call slavery America's original sin, when America accounted for less than 1% of the slave trade, it inherited it from England. Um, every slave brought to America was enslaved by a black African. Well, don't, don't, you, don't you think the other problem would be, though, is, is selective telling of history? So yes, there was atrocities committed, but if you made every American schoolchild memorize Lincoln's second inaugural address... Even the atrocities is totally distorted. No, but that's what I was getting to, right? If you get every school child to memorize something like Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address, which is the greatest political sermon ever preached and probably the greatest American political speech, in my view, you'll, you'll have this, this deep understanding of, of, of how America atoned for, for the history of slavery. But yet when no, nobody's, ever read the, nobody's ever read this speech and it's completely ignored. It's easy to silence things. If you have a completely dishonest media and you have a professoriate that's on the other side, you you have no you cannot overestimate the importance of the takeover of the schools and and their abuse as weapons. Let let me give you an idea. I happen to know a little bit about slavery because I wrote a book in, in about two thousand on the controversy over reparations for slavery. And look, we have a, 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 here's two slave systems at the time. In Brazil, the slave system was so brutal and so cruel and so anti-human and so, so racist, even though it was conducted by black, by brown people, that they had to replace the slave population every year because they all died. In America, the slave trade was outlawed in 1804. So from 1804 to 1860, 
There were no slaves imported in the whole of the, of the United States. But the slave population in America grew fourfold from 1 million to 4 million. It's a, it was a relatively, and of course I would be hung for saying this, but a relatively benign institution. But you just think about trying to tell that to people and imagining what would happen to you and you will see how far we are from being a democracy anymore, how far we are from the, a, a country where there's compromise, where people uh, you know, have mutual respect for people who disagree with them and so forth. It's, it's been a, a sea change. And I don't think if you hadn't lived through both periods, I don't, I don't know that you could fully appreciate how great this change or disastrous this change has been. The, the kind of lies that are told freely and go unchallenged are amazing. I, I, my jaw drops every time I hear of one. Anyway, so my book, <laughs> we haven't even mentioned the title is I Can't Breathe, How a Racial Hoax is Killing America. Yeah, so we've been discussing the thesis of it all, all the way through and, and a lot of the things contained in that book. What, 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 one of the fundamental questions I wanted to ask you about the book, and you mentioned early on in the interview that what distinguishes your book from a lot of books written on the same subject is how blunt it is. And, and yeah, the, the framework that I was really interested in as well is the fact that I think you're probably the only conservative writer who had a personal experience with the Black Panthers and now has written a book primarily dedicated to exposing Black Lives Matter, which is a very, a very unique perspective. So with this book, what do you think... The listener, why do you think the listeners need to read your specific book? There, there's a few other books examining separate things, but what sets yours apart besides the framework we just discussed? I went over, because hoax is a very strong word, I went over, or I decided actually, because I didn't know this when I started the book, went over 26 cases where Black Lives Matter claims that a Black person was murdered for their skin color by a law enforcement officer. And I, I found every one, of the, every one of these cases was a lie. And they're brazen, not small lies. Let's, you know, let's take George Floyd. Why is race, was race a factor? How, how do you explain that race was a factor in the killing of George Floyd or the death of George Floyd since we don't really know how he was killed? Because <laughs> he had, he had a, well, let me just back up a second. I should have thought of this when we're talking about fascism. What is Black Lives Matter and its supporters? And these, a lot of them are really decent people. It's a lynch mob. It's the classic definition of a lynch mob. First the verdict, then the autopsy, then the toxicology, then some gesture at an investigation, which can only come up with one conclusion or there'll be another riot. And finally, the verdict enforced. That's, that's what we're living in. We're living inside a lynch mob these days. And George Floyd is a very good example of it. I mean, I knew that this was completely phony when, right early on because they 
announced that there were four cops who were going to be indicted and were. Three of them still facing trial. And two of those cops were minorities and one of them was black. And he had joined this police, the Minneapolis police force specifically to reform it. And then of course the police chief is black. And then everybody in sight in Minneapolis on the city council is a Democrat or, or worse, a Green Party member. And then when the trial, and the trial is, is such a kangaroo court, nobody's saying this, of course, or very few people are saying it. But when the trial verdict is delivered, before which the president of the United States announces that he's praying every night for a guilty verdict, how an American is that? How a lynch mob-esque is that? And Maxine Waters is traveling into the state calling for guilty, guilty, guilty. And everybody knows that if a guilty uh, verdict is not delivered, they will burn up Minneapolis. They already had $500,000 in damage, burn it up again and kill people. That's the context. Now, 60 Minutes actually interviewed the chief prosecutor in the case, who was Keith Ellison. Who was Keith Ellison? For 11 years, he was a spokesman for the worst, nastiest, most evil racist in America, Louis Farrakhan. Farrakhan so hates white people and so hates America that he took a trip to Iran to chant with the terrorists who run the state Death to America. That's who Keith Ellison is. And now he's the attorney general of, and he was also the chairman of the Democrat Party, which tells you what you need to know about the Democrat Party, that they would appoint such an individual to be their chair. And, then, and he's asked by 60 Minutes, was there a racial element in the killing of George Floyd? And his answer, we couldn't find one. We couldn't find one. Well, if he couldn't find one, it wasn't for want of looking. And what it says is that they couldn't find a single witness to a remark in a fit of anger by the cop denigrating Black people. Now, everybody who, within earshot of my voice, has been enraged enough to say things they regret. And this cop was so squeaky clean, this cop, this prosecutor, or the cop was so squeaky clean that this racist prosecutor could not find or, or bribe one witness to testify that this guy had made racist remarks. That's where we are. George Floyd was not killed because he was black. We don't even have the evidence that he was killed is totally unconvincing. If you followed the toxicology reports and looked at the evidence, he had four times the lethal dose of fentanyl in his system, which shuts off your breathing capacity. You can't kill a person with it. Yeah, look, the video was horrifying. This guy... This guy Chauvin seemed out to lunch. He doesn't have fully human uh, 
reflexes or whatever. I'm not speaking here on behalf of Derek Chauvin. But the fact, the fact of the matter is, you can't kill somebody with a knee to the side of the neck. And that's because the windpipe is here. That's what shuts off the breathing. And we also know this because in the five years prior to George Floyd's death, 247 felons were subjected to a knee on the neck. It's to shut off the blood supply to the brain so you go unconscious. 247, not one of them died, not one. And that, that was a kind of information buried in the course of the trial as well. Go through all of them. Breonna Taylor, the innocent lady who was shot and killed in her sleep, in her home. How horrible is that? It's just a lie. Breonna Taylor was the girlfriend and, and accomplice of a major drug dealer. She used her bank account to hide his ill-gotten gains. She used her mailing address for as one of his distribution centers. And when the cops came, they did announce, even though they had a no-knock warrant, they announced they were police. They called people to come out with your hands up. And instead, Breonna and her new boyfriend got out of bed. And the boyfriend, idiot that he was, fired at the police and wounded one of them. Well, the police have families, and they want to return home alive to them. So there's a common saying on police forces. It's called pray and spray. That is, you're being shot at. You don't know how many people are shooting at you. You don't know where precisely the shots are coming from. So you pray and you spray the area with bullets in the hopes that you will kill your would-be assassin before he kills you. That's how Breonna Taylor died. And Oprah Winfrey, a, a poster child, she's not a child, a poster woman for how um, America is not and has not been a racist country for 40 or 50 years. Here's a woman who was brought up, her, her grandfather was a sharecropper she was brought up, raised as a young person in the most segregated racist state in the Union, Mississippi, and became the richest woman in America. How? Because millions of middle-class white women who'd never been to a sensitivity training class fell in love with her, respected her intelligence, her charm, and her caring qualities. And they toppled Phil Donahue, who was the reigning king of afternoon television at the time. I guarantee you that Donahue did not say, we need a black talk show host to be the star of afternoon TV, and therefore I'm stepping out of the way. She did it because Americans are not racist. I visited college campuses. We're the bodyguard, I may say. This has been going on for decades, that I had to take a bodyguard to have an academic lecture in a university, on a university campus. That tells you what was going on beneath the surface there.
So, so we're well over the hour mark now. So I want to I want to end by uh, just just getting you to tell all the listeners where they can pick up a copy of your book. I can't breathe. How a radical hoax is killing America. It's at uh, a publication of, of Regnery, which is a, is a conservative publishing house that's published a lot of the authors we've had on this show. Where can people order the book? You can get it on Amazon or on my website at frontpagemagazine.com. But now that you bring up, it's a conservative publisher. I used Simon & Schuster used to be my publisher and Basic Books, left-wing publishers. Uh, and I lost them as publishers when I told them that my next book was going to be called Hating White People is a Politically Correct Idea. And they told me, in so many words, we will never publish a book with a title like that. That was 22 years ago. That's a lot of water under the bridge. And that shows you what a dire situation we're in, thanks to the collapse of liberalism and its replacement by a racial fascism. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with David Horowitz. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, head over to the podcast, click the subscribe button, and check out past shows, and be sure to subscribe to get the newest shows delivered directly to your inbox. Again, we very much appreciate you listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week.